The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I'm thrilled to have our guest with us talking about the importance of learning from our mistakes when we're trying to do good. Professor Sean Humphrey describes himself as the blue collar professor. For most of the year, you can expect to see dirt under his fingernails. And one of his favorite smells is burning biomass. He has a knack for mobilizing global grassroots movements on a tiny budget. His pedagogy was formed on gridiron and three bullies and a bathroom determined the path of social justice he walks today. He is currently the groundskeeper at Imagine Social Good and an associate professor of economics at the University of Mary Washington. He's the founder of the $2 Challenge and the author of the Sidekick Manifesto. He's on the board of directors for Students Helping Honduras and is a judge and board member of the Social Impact Media Awards. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Oh, thank you so much, Lee. It's wonderful to be here. Super excited. Oh, me too. Me too. So, Sean, what does doing good mean to you personally? Oh, well, that has changed quite a bit since um, for the past decade. So I think right now, if you go back to uh, Imagine Social Good, um, I've decided to take the title of Groundskeeper because I feel like my role now in sort of like doing good is sort of creating the favorable conditions for others to do the work while I... I do my best for to like stay on the sidelines and do my best to support where I can. But in terms of my uh, specific role in trying to transform any conditions locally or contextually for another community, that's sort of like, I'm not supposed to be there anymore. In the very beginning, if you go back 10 years ago, my first trip to Honduras, I was determined to save the world. And my motivation was very selfish in terms of, I felt like I was probably failing as a human being. I thought, well, I need significance in my life. I need to feel significant. So maybe I should go help some poor people. Yeah, so I've, I've grown. What do you think it is within you that drives you to want to do good? Well, I grew up poor, but you know, poor in the United States is much different than like poor in Honduras. And I, so I want that's why it's difficult for me to say I grew up poor, but I grew up, my family is from Appalachia and I'm not sure if Australians said about this, but Appalachians are sort of, you know, we're considered the white trash of America. And so it's something that, um, we all have a chip on our shoulder about. And so the poverty with that and the number of experiences a child sort of like going into the local grocery store and my mom would send us in with my sister and we would just grab the milk and the bread and we'd walk up to the counter. We couldn't afford it, but my mom would send us anyways because we needed it. And then the person behind the cash register would give us three looks, write our names on a piece of paper, 
how much we owed the store and then put it up on the wall behind them so that everyone could see. And there were multiple receipts with our names on them, like Humphrey, 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 all this money we owed. And so <laughs> the experiences like that, that's where like the engine that still keeps me going in the space. Yeah. Wow. So you do a phenomenal amount of work. You've got so many different projects on the go and, uh, if anyone wants to find out more, because we're not going to be able to cover them all today, I recommend having a look at Sean's website and uh, that will be in the show notes, but you will go down a rabbit warren of really interesting websites and projects and ideas and the way they all come together and fit together is really fascinating to me. But I want to talk about one of them in particular, the Sidekick Manifesto. Can you tell us what it is? I guess the best way to think about it is like, it's an, an enumeration of all the mistakes that I made in my work. Uh, so for 10 years, my students and I ran a microfinance institution in Honduras. I still am on the board directors of an organization that works in Honduras, uh, a former student at my university. He launched it while I was there. And so he and I, I've been with him the entire time. But in that time of 10 years, my, of my students and I working in Honduras, just in terms of like all the mistakes we made, and these are things that I felt like just need to be articulated in terms of like what exactly is our role. It sort of starts off with the idea of like, this is how complex the process of economic development is. It's a long-term process, a contextually specific process, a process that is really a process of collective action where people from various backgrounds of different groups must come together to sort of put forward a policy or support a policy to move their own community forward. It's a historically anchored process in the sense that the policies that a society or community decides to move forward with to help them move and develop their own community, it's really that policy is a function of what has been happening in the past as well. And so we're talking about communities have these long, you know, hundreds of years of history that anchors them to a particular path. Um, it's called the path-dependent process. Uh, I was trained as an economic development economist. And so um, my, my mentor, Doug North, this is his work. But so I take his work and then think about our role. When I looked at myself and my students, I'm like, have any of us ever ended our own poverty? No. So why would we assume we even know how to end another community's poverty? And this is just sort of thing about enumerating all different things that we don't have. We don't vote in their elections. We don't pay their taxes. We don't speak their language. We don't know their culture. We're there for a short duration of time. You take all that and we're like, okay, and you come back to the actual process, which is a long-term process, a process that is anchored in the culture and the community and the history, which we don't share. Why would we ever imagine that we could end another community's poverty? The economic development process should be a locally driven process a process led by local communities and not outsiders like ourselves. So the way it has been set up is sort of like, you know, from our perspective, it's like it's a top-down process um, where a bunch of usually white men and conference halls in Western countries dictate or tell us what the process should be. And then the psychic manifest just goes through the process saying, okay, these are the 10 promises that we should make if we want to sort of take this role as a psychic instead of being the hero in the process. One thing I love about uh, what you've written on the Sidekick Manifesto website, and I'll read it out, is poverty is about power, politics, and a system of rules that allow so few to capture so many of the benefits of economic prosperity. Poverty is human-made, and it can be unmade by humans. That includes us. We will not end poverty by buying a pair of Tom's shoes, going on mission trips, or inventing new gadgets for the developing world. 
Our task is to agitate for change in the rules that perpetuate poverty, rules that our society and our politicians have had a hand in creating and making. I love this. I think it's, uh, you know, somewhat of a slap in the face to a lot of the narrative that comes out of efforts to solve poverty uh, and efforts to market those solutions. What led you to write this? What led you down that path of going, look, we, we have to do better here? I got pissed. I just, <laughs> you know, so there's an experiential learning exercise I do with my students called the $2 challenge, which itself has its own problems with its name and the way it's set up. My students and I live on $2 a day and we adhere to other rules. It can be challenged on so many levels in terms of like, it insults people who are actually poor and there's all kinds of, and we, we take all those issues head on and that's actually part of the process of sort of helping them transform their thinking. It's a five day challenge and we were like day three and I can't remember what it was, but there's some kind, oh, it was Hugh Jackman. Oh, Australian. Uh, <laughs> I see this commercial or somewhere where Hugh Jackman says, you know what? I'm living on $2 a day to save the world. And it was another organization out of Australia that came. I can't remember what it was, but they got all these celebrities talking about how they're going to live on $2 a day. Is it the Make Poverty History movement? I think um, so. Yes. I think so. But Hugh Jackman was their spokesperson. And I'm like, I love Hugh Jackman. I love Wolverine. After that, I was like, I cannot stand Wolverine anymore. So <laughs> what we do is that we recruit campuses across the United States. And I was calling a campus and I talked to a student leader. And they're like, well, we're doing this that Hugh Jackman's doing. Why would we do your $2 challenge? I think I got upset about it is that the power of celebrity in the space and the power of that narrative and the power of simple solutions, where with the $2 challenge, we spend hours upon hours watching uh, documentaries, doing deep readings like Ivan Illich is to help with good intentions, readings that challenge the very essence of what you're even trying to do. Why are you even playing poverty right now? Why do you think it's going to help anybody? It's not. We do the whole experience not to end poverty. We do the whole experience to basically deconstruct our hero complex. And when I had this student, I found that I couldn't compete with this other narrative that Hugh Jackman was putting forward. I'm, I, Hugh, I'm sorry if I'm putting you on this foot. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the thing is that that's where like, and that sparked this idea like we need a, de a declarative statement. We need a manifesto to stop. I can't compete with something that comes out of a marketing department. The $2 challenge came out of a classroom and we approached it as a classroom, a, a process of like gathering a circle and through this sort of like dialogue, this back and forth with each other that we would uncover our assumptions and our beliefs that needed to be reconsidered. Whereas the marketing department people put forward with Hugh Jackman is like, okay, solve poverty, live on trails a day, that's it, wipe your hands clean, go on. So yeah, that's where it came from. And I still get angry about it. And it's not a bad angry, it's a good angry because we need anger sometimes to get things done. Right. So what do you think then of the power of celebrity and the, the power of that marketing department and all the philanthropic funds behind that particular movement, which we won't name at this point, is there a benefit to celebrity? Yes, I would say that um, when I wrote the manifesto, I was really in an either or sort of realm. Celebrity power, celebrity narratives, that stuff is limited and it, it shouldn't have a place in development. I guess right now I'm more of a both and sort of person right now where I recognize that yes, there is this sort of like 
benefit that can come from this process in terms of raising awareness and in terms of bringing more people into the movement. I don't see too as many celebrities as I did about five, seven, ten years ago in this space, which is sort of a good thing, but maybe they moved on to another issue. I don't know. And it may be that global poverty is no longer sexy anymore. I think there's also an element of reputational risk in this. There's been some pretty big or heavy criticism of certain celebrities and their efforts to engage in humanitarian work. Ed Sheeran, you know, there's the Radiate Awards. And I I think there's a hesitance because there's a lack of understanding of the complexities of what they're trying to wade into. And I think respecting that... These are celebrities who are artists and experts in their own field and want to genuinely use that power for doing good, but they don't have the time, the technical knowledge, the experience to unpack all of the stuff that the Sidekick Manifesto talks about. And they're relying on the the power of the marketing of these not-for-profits or these international organizations that they're aligning with. There's a reciprocal arrangement. You know, we see it start to go wrong when they're aligning with causes that they don't understand. I don't want to begrudge anybody who wants to try to use the platform and the power and their connections to try to make the world a better place at all. At all. Um, in fact, many of the, the, the motivation behind sort of like the expanded Psychic Manifesto website with the do's and don'ts for different categories is I think about in terms of like my family members or like my grandma, when she saw a cause or something come up on the news, she wanted to do something. And it's almost like with the Psychic Manifesto and the other parts of it, it's like, okay, can we build a space where people can come? And they say, okay, should I donate my used clothes? Should I bear, buy a pair of Tom shoes? Should I go on a mission trip? Can we provide a resource for people to come in and so they can see the do's and the don'ts of it all? And then a final sort of like, okay, this is what we think you should do. And with the psychic manifest as well, it's like, I, I never want to come across as like some kind of do-gooder messiah who knows how to do these things. I have no clue still. It's a very complex space. Um, so if I think, when I talk about celebrities, I don't want to get too harsh on them because they're just human beings like me who are just trying to do their best and trying to figure out how, how can I? I think the problem, I guess, is that with all that power, as they say in Spider-Man, comes responsibility. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Maybe you need to set up some kind of consulting firm for celebrities to sort of say, hey, I know you want to step in the space, but how about you come talk with me and then I can sort of guide you a little bit here and there. Absolutely. And I, I do, I, I have identified that there is a space for that to almost coach people through this idea of uh, social purpose in a meaningful way. And I think, you know, the people that need that are people that this isn't their space and that's totally fine. They've chosen to, to exist and flourish in a different space and they need the support and the guidance and the experience of those who have spent a lot of time thinking about these things and the ethics of intervening in issues that you don't know much about and considering the capacity to cause enormous harm in trying to do good. I think what keeps me anchored in a space of humility in this space is that I just go back and just remind myself of who I was a decade ago. And I remember the moments where I stole dignity from other human beings. One of my first trips on Durst, it was my first time ever being in a developing country. I had never seen poverty like that before. And I was with my students and we were 
launching this project. And of course, as part of this process, you're always sort of, like I said, starting out nonprofit, even a continuing nonprofit, you always need to sort of commodify the poverty to sell it to others in your community back home so that you can get the, the funds and the awareness to actually, you know, continue to do your work or start your work. And so I took a picture of, a, of an older woman who was carrying firewood on her head. And her name is actually Norma. Norma and I are actually great friends now, but I had to go a long way emotionally to meet her where we could become friends. But one of my first trips, I took a picture of her. I didn't ask her permission. And she was upset. And she was talking to uh, our guide who was Honduran. I do not speak Spanish. I acted like I didn't know what they were talking about, which I knew what they were talking about. So I didn't need to know Spanish and know what was going on. I just had to reflect on that moment and remind myself how I diminished her. I stole from her, essentially. I'm interested to know, did you go ahead and use that image, even though you knew? No, we didn't use the image. But my third trip to Honduras, I was walking with my students around the community and Norma came up to me and just put her, she was like, she's like 60 something. And she put her bony finger in my face and she yelled at me in Spanish. And I looked at Megan, my student, I'm like, Megan, what'd she say? And Megan's like, she told you, you better learn Spanish. And <laughs> my fourth or fifth trip down, one time I was with my students and she walked up behind me, just grabbed my hand and we held hands. And she was just like, it's like this moment she finally said, like, okay, you're okay. And I think it's where this, with the psychic manifesto is this idea of like this process of economic development, we can get really technocratic about it. But at the end, ultimately what this is all about, it's about relationship building. And relationship building is a very time-consuming process, a delicate process that does not scale very well. How can we put ourselves in a space, in a place, a mindset where we could be people who are accessible or willing to, to put in the time and the patience to build these relationships with others? It took me years to unwind, untangle my sort of like do-gooder complex, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And that is a great segue into wanting to talk about this idea that you've put forward, this do-gooder industrial complex. And I want to start that conversation by reading out an excerpt from a blog article that you wrote. And it says, I was in eighth grade. It was a cold spring morning in Ohio, and I was holding my mom's hand in a human chain that stretched across the continental United States. We were ending hunger in Africa. <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? I mean, so the conditioning starts early in the United States. I had, it took me a while to figure out that's what my start was. So yeah, how many presidents and British prime ministers and CEOs just followed behind that talking about how we were the generation that was going to end global poverty? So tell us, what is the industrial complex? What is the do-gooder industrial complex? It is. It's like this system of individuals and nonprofits and organizations in the United Nations who are all on message in terms of like, okay, yes, we are the ones who need to take control of this. Obviously, they can't develop themselves, so we need to find some way to come in from the outside and fix their problem for them. But it is a space where you are, everyone's competing with each other for attention and funds. And like, what, what's the best method by which we can grab attention and also grab money from our donors' pockets? Yeah. I mean, in the child protection space, obviously, there's a lot of discussion around poverty porn and how we use children 
in vulnerable or undignified positions to raise funds. I think there has been a quite a large shift away from that. But we can look at the science around what motivates people to give and it's individual stories. People want to connect to an individual story. So they've, you know, looked at studies whether you're presented with an individual story of a child's situation and and their suffering and what you can do to alleviate that versus the story of a community that that child might be a part of that has all these kind of wider needs and people mostly will give to the individual child because that there's that human connection yeah and it makes complete sense i wrote a blog post called taking pictures of poor kids or with poor kids and it was about my experience with a child in honduras we were teaching a financial literacy class my students were and so I was tasked with a couple other students who were like, just watch the kids so the moms could focus on just sort of like, you know, taking the classes and stuff like that. So we were playing games like Jenga, stuff like that. And I had just gotten a, a tattoo, a snake tattoo on my forearm. It wasn't my grandpa's. I got it re- replicated on my forearm and she was fascinated with it. And she drew a picture of it and gave it to me. And it was just, she was like in her Sunday best. She had this picture and I was like, I was like, Santi, one of my students, can you take a picture of us? And he did. And then even though I have years of work, uh, the psychic manifesto, my hero complex kicked in and, and I was like, okay, let's go share this on Facebook. And then, and he's, I'm like, I'm going to share it. He's like, Dr. H, we don't do that. I'm like, Santa, you're right. This is why I can't get too, if we were talking earlier, big for my britches in the space, because basically I cannot control the hero complex inside me. And so it kicks in. But one of the things I was going through, and I was saying, okay, so let's put myself in the United States context. I'm at the playground by myself, or even with Dylan, my son. I would never be allowed to take a picture of one of his friends or with me and just post on Facebook because one, we don't allow that. Children of privilege have privacy. And the second thing is that, and at least for most of us who are adults in this society, at least in the United States, we've internalized that we're not allowed to take pictures of kids. And then on top of that, the community has also said that so that if they see someone taking a picture of a kid who's not their kid, they will enforce it. So really, the reason why I don't take pictures of kids in the United States at playgrounds randomly and pose with them is because I know that I'll get punished. But how come I can't transfer that same set of cultural expectations and norms to Honduras with me? I mean, what am I doing posting a picture of myself with a child I don't know, and she doesn't know me, I'm a stranger. That's sort of, well, that's disturbing. I love that this concept comes up a lot in this podcast is this idea of othering, you know, this placing people in a different basket based on them being different to us. And how that comes out often is different rules for different different groups of people. And you just articulated that perfectly around, yeah, it's, it's not okay. You know, you're, you're a creep if you're taking pictures of other people's children in a, in a playground. Or, but for some reason, we completely absolve ourselves of those rules, those social norms that are there in our own societies. And we walk into schools overseas and we hug and wrestle with children that are not our own. And we take photos of them and pose with them. On my first trip to Honduras, I went to a nutrition center and I was in a room full of kids 
who were my son's age, who was this time, it's probably, he's like three or four, maybe four or five, but they were stunted in growth and stuff like that. And, but they left me in a room with all these kids and, you know, they're tugging my beard, rubbing my head, calling me Pelon. And they're like, all these things that my son does that he did when he was young as well is to express love. And I'm just like, and I mean, I got back to like the hotel and I told my, I had to excuse my students. And I, I went to the shower and I turned on the, it's awesome closet and I had to start crying. In that moment, it was transformative, but at the same time, it should not have happened. So yeah, the psychic manifesto. That's sort of like all the things that I've done so wrong. I'm just like, okay, how can I help other people not do what I did? And maybe they can get there faster than I got there. And then also, like I said, the, and I love having these conversations because when, I, when I'm reminded of the stories behind the manifesto, it just reminds me of how much it's the battle's never won. It's like, it's constant. Psychic or hero, psychic or hero. And I want to be the hero. You know, I want to be the hero, but I can't. Yeah. You've talked about that the do-gooder industrial complex believes that solutions come from without. They're top-down and they flow from a male-dominated panels in conference halls of the Western world. I think that's a really interesting sentence on its own. This, you know, there's so many parts to that. It's coming from without, so the external solutions to ending poverty, top-down, which we know that's a that's a huge problem and flowing from male dominated panels in the conference halls of the Western world. You've talked about this. You've also talked about your efforts to, I guess, get some of this out there. And when we first had a call to talk about coming on the podcast, you told me that you'd been kicked out of a university campus for discussing these issues. (laughs) Can you tell us about that? Oh, I forgot about that. So I have like a four part blog series called Do Goodernomics. Where I basically just it's a ruthless sort of analysis of sort of like the tacit transaction that happens between people with power like myself and like clients at Honduras in terms of like, so I'm going to give a loan. If I agree to give a loan to uh, one of our clients in Honduras, you know, part of it, I'm like, here's, here's $25 for a loan in exchange. You give a contract, say you'll, you'll want to pay me back. But then I want to think about, okay, do I get a picture with you? Uh, are you going to make me lunch? Can I take a picture of kids? Like all these other things that come along with that sort of transaction. And I remember I, I went to this college campus to sort of like, I gave that presentation. It went well and not well. It went well in the sense that the, the conversations and questions did not stop coming. So it, was, it went on for like an hour and a half. It did not go well, but I think it was just too, I think I was too early for them. I would say now, however, what is your sense about the space in terms of like, my sense is that I think these, maybe, I don't know, I, I'm not as plugged in into like the number of different mission trip and volunteers organizations out there, but what is your sense? Do you think that there's the, a stronger effort to sort of like contextualize these and sort of do preparatory stuff and the other end, a more critical reflection? Yes and no. I mean, I've worked closely with a lot of for-profit companies that do engage in service learning or volunteerism. And I think that there are differing motivations around why they want to engage in trying to understand how to do it better. But in my experience, there's a, there's a disconnect between the intention and wanting to be positioned and seen as doing the right thing, but actually investing in changing the model of how they engage with local communities 
and changing the business systems and structures that allow for meaningful interaction that's not exploitative is a very different thing than saying we want to do the right thing here. And you would know from your side is that taking the time to have these conversations about critical reflection and unpacking this industrial complex that we're talking about and hero worshipping and all of that kind of stuff takes a lot of time and takes a skilled facilitator to help students navigate those thoughts and, and their own experiences. So there's an intention, but there's, I think, quite a disconnect in being able to make it happen at scale at this point in time. Yeah. I was coming back from that campus after getting essentially booted off. <laughs> I remember coming home and then there's a brand new commercial from Tom's Shoes that was targeting like eight and 10 year olds. I'm like, I can't compete with that in terms of like, I'm going, I can't go college campus, college campus, trying to put out the, the word about the psychic manifesto. And then all of a sudden I have Tom's Shoes coming in with this commercial, which is all glamour and sunshine. So, so the idea is like, how do you scale more nuanced thinking? That's sort of like, yeah, I don't know if you, I don't know how you do that. I mean, I, I think it takes a lot of time and effort and there is no one size fits all approach because if you're going into communities, every community is different. The social challenges that those communities are experiencing are different. They're localized. There are are factors that are very local as to why this particular community or segment of society is experiencing this issue in this location at this time. And, um, I think, you know, there's an appetite for some sort of one size fits all solution to how we ethically engage with communities through travel or through learning. And the fact is that there isn't each organization and each business that is stepping into this space and making money off it has a responsibility to develop a customized approach to unpacking these issues. And unfortunately, scaling that is resource intensive. And so you have to question the validity of the business model of volunteerism, essentially. Yeah, because I think about the history just in the United States in terms of like, so like when Honduras went on the travel warning list, my university stopped funding travel to for students to go to Honduras. And I, and I wonder with respect to the COVID-19 in terms of like international travel. And I think about the number of students because that campus that will start moving inward and now going to Appalachia or to Native American reservations. And so I go back home where I grew up and then I had a bunch of students from an Ivy League college come into my community to try to help my society prosper. I mean, I'm not sure if you can cuss on this podcast, but that's the first word. <laughs> Expletives come out right away. You know what I'm saying? It's just sort of like, that would be from my perspective in my community and me myself, I would find that so insulting. Yeah. But then once again, I went to Honduras. Yeah. I did the same thing. And I think there's a piece in there around um, witnessing. I think we're seeing a lot more of this. Um, and I don't know if witnessing is the right word, but this idea that we are somehow helping by going in to these communities and witnessing their poverty or their suffering and that somehow that is enough on its own because it brings the person who's witnessing 
a level of awareness of their own privilege and their own power. And I think the intention behind that often is to help people recognize their own privilege and go, oh, okay, I I should do something to help. The next logical step is, okay, we go in, we witness, and then we should move on to helping because we've recognized our power and privilege. But I think rather than facilitating the checking of privilege, it actually just cements privilege because we're not giving people an opportunity to do something from there in a respectful and ethical way. So I wrote a blog post a while ago called, you know, why do we need poor people? And I was thinking about all the ways that we use poor people in this country. So I was thinking like, you know, if my son does, it loses gratitude. So I'll take him down to a food pantry and I'll have him ladle some soup for some poor people that'll teach him, you know, to sort of be grateful for stuff. That's one way that we use poor people. And I think, you know, just going back to your idea of witnessing, that's sort of like, okay, all the ways that we do is we're like, how do I build purpose into my classroom? Well, I add in a service learning component. If we take away poor people, we can't do that anymore. If I take away poor people, what are all the randomized control trial people, all the economists going to do? They won't be able to experiment on communities anymore and get published and get their, and get tenured. And so, I mean, sometimes the things are complex, sometimes they're easy, but maybe the easy thing is, is just like, what is the next step? Do you, how do you translate that into a, like a policy? So we're like, then sort of like give them sort of like, a list of the members of Congress and say, okay, at least I'm not sure what you guys call your place in, in Australia, but, but sort of like, okay, list your members of Congress and your district, your senator, please send in a letter, this preform letter, like this is a policy that you should advocate for now having come to sort of like, let's say Ohio, when you saw, you know, poor people in Ohio. They do poverty tours in Ohio so that people can see Appalachian poverty. And they have for years. It's a really tough one because if we don't know if we don't know something, we can't try to address it. Yeah. It's another perfect representation of wicked problems, you know, in trying to solve something, we're creating something that may be infinitely more harmful or create different kinds of harms to communities. So when you say it's seamless to privileges, can you give me like an example of like something you've experienced, you've heard or learned about that sort of like, I'm curious about that. Let's look at uh, service trips or student mission trips or service trips and look at this idea that we've got a well-designed one which might look at actually learning experiences. So it's framed around learning, not helping. And it has all those pieces that we were talking about before. So it has pre-departure awareness on social issues that you're going to be confronted with, You might visit organizations that are working in that space to solve those problems. That doesn't mean that you're playing with children in an orphanage. That means you're actively learning from people who work on the front line of this. And then you go home and you have a facilitated reflection process where you can unpack these issues and that can then lead into you having an opportunity, an educated opportunity to engage in that space in a practical way. Or you have the other version where you go on a trip and there's no pre-departure kind of emphasis on the social challenges being experienced in that country or community. And you go in and you build a wall uh, in a school or a toilet block or you essentially do hard labor, getting really sweaty and moving dirt and and building things. And 
you have a transformative experience because you're witnessing the community around you and how different that life is than yours. And it does make you aware of your privilege as a young person, because, you know, you, you, your toilet block at school isn't like this. Your life isn't like the people living in the village next to the school. And you then go home and you're not able to engage in a facilitated self-reflection of what that actually means and what your role is in it. And I think because we don't provide that nuance or context and we don't actually actively link it to learning, then we are missing an opportunity, but we're also cementing that privilege because it's just, it's coming away with this idea that, yep, we are privileged. You know, I did recognize how privileged I am, but what do they do with that then? You ever wonder what the long-term consequences of a community's long-term exposure to short-term volunteerism is? I do wonder about that a lot, actually. (laughs) Yes, I think about that a lot. And I, I think, you know, tourism and volunteerism in particular has the power to irrevocably change the structure of communities and the culture of communities. And, you know, we know tourism has the power to do vast amounts of good in terms of economic prosperity and bringing that to to communities. And we we see efforts at that through community-based tourism initiatives, things like that. But we don't put enough effort into protecting and safeguarding communities and giving them the skills to navigate what the impact of having all of these people come in and trying to help does. I think about the effect on young children living in these communities who see groups of, you know, privileged white kids coming in and doing activities in their community. What does that say about how these children are growing up thinking that white people come to help us? How does that disempower them and the narrative about themselves and who they are as poor people or people that live in poverty? You know, how does that contribute to cultures of aid dependency? And, you know, you see that in post-conflict societies where there's a high amount of dependency on aid and that such as Cambodia. So a lot of jobs post-conflict were in the development sector. There's a lot of NGOs coming in. And so a lot of Cambodia's economic prosperity was kind of started to build up on these jobs. And now it's tourism as well, which is all interconnected. But yeah, I think a lot about how, how this impacts communities long-term. So I wrote a blog a while ago called Eroding Agency. I wrote it after a Jehovah's Witness came to my front door. I opened a door and we started a conversation and my son was younger, so he was standing by my side. And so she was telling me about her worldview and how ultimately my worldview was wrong and her and she was she was a wonderful person but as i was standing there i was watching my son and i'm and i'm watching him watch this interaction and she has a worldview i have a worldview and she is asserting that my worldview is wrong and that where it's taken me is a bad place but if you change and come to her worldview then i will see i'll have salvation and stuff like that and I was thinking about that, that Gandhi quote, because you can find yourself by losing yourself in the service to others. Maybe I'm putting myself in her shoes. She may have thought that she was serving me. And can you still find yourself 
if you're falsely serving somebody still. And then I was like watching my son, like he's seeing authority in terms of like with the, uh, another worldview. It's like, how does he see me now that he's seen another human being say that my worldview is wrong? And, and once again, she was a wonderful human being. She just had a different worldview than mine. And, but then I think about every time that my students and I were in Honduras, I was the Jehovah Witness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Even though I wasn't, I wasn't selling anything explicitly, I was selling a system of rules and ideas as a white American heterosexual male. So I was selling. Yeah, yeah. So we could go on about this all day, I'm sure, but I'm going to shift the focus back to you. Who do you think has been your greatest influence in doing good? I think my son. Ah. Because when he was born, I remember holding him. We just, it's only like a couple of days. I was looking into his eyes and I'm sure everyone who's had a kid, you probably had this experience where they just, they asked the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and basically I was assessed right there. And he's like, what kind of person are you? And I swear, I saw his whole future unfold. I saw myself get old. I saw everything. And that's where like the idea was like, what do I add up to? What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when I say this, it's something that you think future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. Oh, that's a good one. Cause I am into futurism and I think about artificial intelligence and big data. I think my biggest fear of the future is virtual reality. What is reality in terms of like, is it a digital reality we're gonna live in or is it gonna be more of a sort of like, you know, carbon-based reality? I do see some advantages in terms of this great podcast about how the blockchain is going to allow for what's called self-sovereignty. So every single human being on the planet will be able to have their own blockchain with their own identity. And I think that has incredible potential for numbers of communities, especially forced migrants or people who are displaced within their own community who lose all their identification. They have a blockchain they go to, no matter where they're at in the world, they will have an identity. They will be a citizen of something. And I think right now for how many displaced do we have millions upon millions right now in the world right now? And some of them are stuck in a no person's land where they have no identity, they have no country anymore. And on a positive sense, I think this idea of a blockchain and self-sovereignty is something that is going to be rather incredible for people who are marginalized right now. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Um, one of my three lines on that I have in terms of like what guide my sort of like my work is one is teachers were in the liberation business. It's not about just me disseminating information about economics. It's about me liberating you as a human being and you doing it to me as well. That's a, that's a mutual process. I mean, my students have liberated me in ways I cannot thank them enough for. And so in many ways together, this journey, we, yeah, this critical dialogue. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder, so no matter what your pedigree is, you get the pedigree to kick ass already. So don't worry about if you don't go to, I'm not sure how your, I'm not sure how your universities are structured in your society, but we are pretty, even though we say we're not a class-based society in the United States, we're a class-based society. And even though I am, I am a white heterosexual American male, a lot of people will say that you don't have a right to talk about not having privilege, but where I come from, it's sort of like I had all those advantages, but if you're poor and white from that part of the country in Appalachian, that's why they, you're still allowed to say redneck and white trash without anyone flinching. So yeah, so my pedigree actually gives me quite a bit of power. I'm really happy with it. So that's what I tell all my students that you already got the pedigree to kick ass. Don't worry about it. Yep. Excellent. 
So tell me about a person who you think is doing good in the world right now. I have a few people that I always go to. Jennifer Lentfer is incredible. She's a blogger. Yes, I know of her. She's amazing. She's one of my top teachers, uh, Tobias uh, Denkhaus. I think yes. he's, yeah, also Tobias Kez was, yeah, this <laughs> weekly roundup. Uh, you know, I, you know, my students and I, at the time, Jay was pivotal as a blogger. I'm not sure you know, Jay's, I think his, he's now evil genius. It's like his Twitter, but his blogs like a decade ago were pivotal to sort of like the space moving into a better direction. I used to love the people at YDev were awesome. Okay. So where's your favorite place on earth? It's in Alexandria, Kentucky, which is where my grandma had a trailer on the top of the hills in Kentucky. We don't have that land anymore. We had to sell it all, but um, that was my favorite place on planet. Perfect. And finally, what books are you reading or podcasts are you listening to? Okay, podcasts I listen to on Bean, and I'm listening to Exponential Wisdom right now because that's the futurism stuff, which is cool. The books I'm reading right now are I'm reading a book. I have like three books on my bedside that I read every night. One is Constellations by David White, W-H-Y-T-E. The Tao book by Ursula K. Le Guin. I have dyslexia, so I can't grab names on a regular, easy basis. I'll shoot, I'll shoot yeah. you an email. Yeah. That's totally fine. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Sean. It's been a wonderful journey through your thoughts and your work, uh, and I've loved every minute, minute of it. Again, you're one of those guests that I just want to keep bringing back. So uh, look out for another invite to come back and we'll dig into some of this a bit deeper. And thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This was totally awesome and i learned so much and that's what you know anytime we get kindred spirits together it's just sort of like it's awesome and so i've learned a great deal and um yeah i cannot wait to talk again and connect you with all the great people that have taught me great things so um yeah it was awesome thank you awesome thanks sean thanks for listening to the good problem podcast if you like what you hear don't forget to subscribe and share Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.